Hello, I'm Kat Rosenfield. Welcome to a new episode of Feminine Chaos. This is a shorter cut of my chat with writer Alice Gribbins. To hear the full interview and to get access to other exclusive content, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash feminine chaos. Thank you and enjoy the episode. This is Kat, and this is Feminine Chaos. I'm joined today by Alice Gribben. Alice, can you introduce yourself and tell us uh, who you are and what you write? Sure. Hi, Kat. Thank you for having me. I'm a poet who has, in the past year, taken to writing prose. Never really wanted to, never had the ambition to, but just too many things have been (laughs) making me rant and rave in my own home, and I felt compelled to um, make essays out of some of the thoughts and ideas that I've had. I'm now putting those essays up on Substack, so you can read them at alicegribbon.substack.com. I'm English, but I've lived in the US for almost a decade now. I moved here because of poetry, really. Um, I moved here to get an MFA and ended up uh, marrying an American and staying here it's been a funny few years in the poetry world. I guess since I since I've lived here, I feel like so much has changed in the culture. You know, in some ways the talk, the conversation is narrowing, but on the other hand, you know, I published this essay that we're going to talk about today on empathy just one week ago, and you know, I published it with no platform whatsoever. I in the past have had various affiliations with institutions that I've studied in and taught in and worked at. But these days I, you know, I'm on my own. I, I work as a freelancer and, um, you know, don't uh, really have any platform. And I threw this essay up online and it's actually, uh, you know, been read by a surprising number of people. So it all it, at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for people to be independent these days. It's very heartening, encouraging. Yeah, well, I think there's a real hunger for it. And this essay you wrote, The Empathy Racket, which is on your Substack, and I encourage everyone to read it, you know, set aside about an hour because you'll need it to, you know, to really like take your time and digest. Um, But I saw this shared by a bunch of writers I respect, um, people who are, you know, I think, very intellectually curious, really solid thinkers. And the fact that it resonated so much, I really think speaks to a broader hunger that's um, getting fiercer right now for cultural criticism that isn't just issued through this one particular lens. We have right now, if you go to really any outlet that covers culture, that covers art, you'll see movies, television, books, everything essentially being engaged with through this same framework, which is, you know, very kind of overtly political, very much a question of, you know, does this hue to the proper progressive values, you know, the ones that we have been lately describing as woke, although I guess that's kind of gone out of fashion now, we're not supposed to say that anymore. I really loved reading this because it was such an evisceration of what I think is this very facile urge to 
make art into a moral question and then to defend it on those grounds as if there could be no purpose to art unless we can argue that it's morally important in some way. Yeah, that's the argument that I'm making, that we're living in a time... This has happened before in history, of course. I mean, these things come around, but we are living in a, a particular time in which it has been deemed that the ability of an artwork to bring about, just to like kind of briefly summarize the essay, I guess, um, the ability of an artwork to bring about feelings of empathy in the person engaging the work, um, whether it's empathy for you know a character in a novel. Um, a, a speaker in a poem or the subject of a painting or or um, the artist themselves um, or uh, an event you know some kind of social or, or historical event um, the ability of art to kind of bring about those feelings in us is why we should appreciate art um, and and even more than that it uh, this this idea becomes um, a kind of justification for the very existence of art. The idea is that this is why art matters um, to us as um, as human beings, and because it makes us kinder, because it makes us um, better and makes society better um, in some strange way that's never really explained. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, it is a it's a it's a weird premise that has really taken off. I I say in the essay, you know, I'm writing specifically about empathy, but there's a lot of similarities um, in this the kind of mechanism um, or the, the function that empathy serves for these people who are invoking empathy, whether it's, you know, critics or curators or editors or educators and, and then artists themselves. Um, it's similar to the way that um, that politics has also entered um, the art world and the book world uh, in such a major way. Um, it's about making us and making the world better. Um, you use the word morality, which I think is, um, you know, is is right. There is a secular moralism to all of this. Um, you know, when I say this has happened before, the history of art is is very very complicated, and it goes back to. Um, before society even existed, you know, human beings um, as a species, I think, and the the archaeological record shows we've been we've been making artworks before we lived in group in any kind of settled way. Um, so you know, we have the instinct for it in us. Um, the question is just whether talking about empathy all the time or making art about politics is really helpful in terms of us having a a greater appreciation for um, individual works of art you know I I have just I have elected in life to put art um, very close to the center of my life I I have chosen for it to matter to me and I think every individual needs to kind of figure out for themselves whether they care about art and if so why and there's just there's a kind of unthinkingness to the the new, what I think of as less as a kind of moral push uh, behind art. Um, I prefer the term utilitarian. I just think it's a better catch-all um, for these different kind of ideas that are driving the empathy push and then also kind of social justice um, and therapeutics. These um, new ways that that institutions have of talking about 
um, art and, and justifying art to a wider public. Yeah, let's talk about the justification aspect of it, because I think that that really kind of gets at it. You know, for as long as we have had people feeling compelled to produce art, which is basically the entirety of human history, we've also had this sense that we have to justify or defend the reasons for making it, um, lest they be deemed frivolous or somehow, you know, otherwise unworthy. And you can see this, you know, throughout history, obviously, yes, you know, there's been this idea, well, you know, we make art as a form of worship of whatever the the proper deity is, or for instance, the Soviet Union, it was like, well, we make art to uphold the proper political values and, you know, done correctly, the art will instill this kind of national pride, make people feel good about the country that they live in. And so that's the purpose that it serves. Mm-hmm. Um, And always, I think there has been this backlash then. And, you know, I've noticed that your, the title of your substack, it's Notes of an Esthete. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, that's um, in some ways a, a kind of a radical thing to maintain, you know, no, like this doesn't have to serve a higher purpose. It doesn't have to instill a proper feeling. It's just here mm-hmm. and it can be just that it's beautiful or that it's entertaining or you know, that it makes you feel something, but it doesn't have to be something good. It doesn't have to be something noble. And I'm saying this as I'm staring at this image, the header image of uh, Caravaggio's Judith Beheading, uh, how do you pronounce this, Holofernes? Mm-hmm. I, I prefer actually Artemisia Gentileschi's rendering of this scene because it's a little bit more dynamic you can really see Judith putting her weight into the blade um, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's quite a brutal scene and it's it's a mur- it's a murder we're seeing a man's head being liberated from his body by a woman with a sword and it's an interesting question to say can't this just exist can't it just exist to be looked at and to provoke whatever responses it might without us saying this is good, actually, because it ennobles the human race in some way to look at this image. The people who look at this are going to, you know, to feel a good way or go and do a good thing, having looked at it. This is a, a really complicated question. I think it's difficult to write about the role of art. I can, I can ask you a more leading question, which is, was there something you saw that kind of tipped you over into being I guess angry enough because there is there is a sense you know throughout this essay that you're just kind of really fed up with this conversation and have taken this moment to just kind of unleash hell on it um did you see something that provoked you to want to write it it wasn't one thing in particular uh the idea of you know empathy being what makes art matter is there, there was an incident or there was a, a moment when it really entered my mind as a bizarre thing to claim. Um, I was in a class I, in graduate school. It was like my second year. I was in a seminar and I, I think we were reading like a Wallace Stevens poem or something. And this uh, guy in, my, in the class, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, sometimes you know when you're like not really talking about art anymore because um, the specificity of the work really ceases to matter. It certainly becomes an incredibly abstract conversation about anything but the work itself. This guy in class kind of made an offhanded comment about, 
well, you know, poetry, like it's all about empathy really, isn't it? Like that's why we're here. Um, and I, I thought that was like the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> I mean, at the time I, I thought to myself, like, when did we all decide this? Like, when did, uh, uh, when did we, you know, come together as, as writers or as poets and say that this was why we do what we do. And the fact that it was kind of this throwaway comment made it even um, more alarming to me. You know, he wasn't, he didn't feel like he needed to make a case for, this comment and you know this was like one guy in a class who um, probably hasn't hadn't thought through his the reasons why he was um, writing poetry himself and hadn't really interrogated his own relationship to um, the history of poetry um, but yeah it was it was that moment back in I don't know like 2015 that lodged the word empathy in my mind um, and then ever since then, you know, when I see empathy referred to in, in reviews or in museum plaques um, or education books, I mean, certainly the way that children are taught about art and take art classes is, um, is going to be different from the way adults do. But I've sort of noticed this new and infantilizing way that we talk about art. You just can't get away from it. I mean, I think we all we see it everywhere. Um, the institutions that we love have um, as part of their mandate to just get more people in the doors or more people picking up the books um, or kind of treating adults who have very complicated psychological and emotional and spiritual lives as um, a children who need to be encouraged to like be nicer to each other. So yeah, I uh, it's it's something that's bugged me for a long time, and then you know this past this past year and a half has been so bizarre. You know the culture is um, changing so fast, and language is being so brutally assaulted. I um, I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time though. It is interesting how within the past. You know, you, you mentioned 2015, and that's, um, you know, I, I was a young adult fiction writer um, from mm. 2012 until about 2016. And that's when I started to notice the prevalence of this empathy kind of discourse or this notion that empathy was the reason behind art, all art. It was certainly the reason why mm. we were writing. Um, mm. And for teenagers, you know, specifically, that suddenly became very prevalent. And at the time, I thought that it was a fascinating little bit of self-importance on the part of the writers who were kind of pushing this as an idea, as though, you know, it wasn't, it somehow wasn't like enough, it wasn't noble enough, or it didn't make you feel important enough, or, or maybe felt it felt like, you know, you didn't merit being paid for it if you were just writing books because you had stories to tell and you thought that they were entertaining and that people would like to read them. It was, mm. no, we're instilling empathy in children we're helping <laughs> yeah. the children ended up taking the form of a lot of really self-important rhetoric from people who pivoted from we write because empathy to this notion mm -hmm. that if you failed to write with enough empathy 
that you would basically ruin the kids, you know, that you had this immense power and you could do this incredible harm. You know, it was like that you held the magic pen and you were going to touch the hearts and minds of these kids. And like, didn't you take that so seriously? Do you understand what a responsibility this is? And I thought it was fascinating at the time because of course, you know, the young people who are reading young adult novels, like, I mean, you know, obviously they're, they're interested in fiction and they're interested in storytelling and that's great. And, you know, and maybe they do read to, you know, experience life from the perspective of another person or to, you know, expand their horizons in this way. It's a nice idea, but they also, you know, they read other books and they have friends and they have parents. And it just was so fascinating to see all of these people kind of go all in, I think for reasons very much tied to ego on the idea that, you know, that, that we were writing to instill empathy. And this was our job. You know, it was something at once very noble and very, very fucking boring. Yeah, it's, I didn't, I didn't realize that was going on. I know that the the YA world is like, incredibly toxic. Um, It's a trip. That's a, that's a whole other episode. (laughs) And vicious. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and, and actually the poetry world is kind of similar. I mean, there's a way in which, I mean, I I know that YA authors could make a lot of money if their books take off, but there's probably um, a similarity there in that these are small worlds of people who, um, you know, are, read a lot of their peers work in some ways. Um, They're not read that much outside of the, the in-group and so um, the dynamics, the personal, interpersonal dynamics can be ridiculous and, and uh, childish. Um, but yeah, what you're describing is really interesting to me and it's sort of this idea that everything is about empathy, I think is, there's, there is an equivalent more broadly ha- happening in the culture, the idea that everything is political. You know, I, I in the last maybe two or three years have... Um, have noticed this to the point where um, when someone calls something political, my first thought is that means it's not political. You know, <laughs> they don't, they don't mean politics when they say that the people saying these things are the ones who know very little about po- the political system. You know, they couldn't tell you um, who the secretaries are, you know, in government. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't tell you what policies are being um, debated in Congress right now. The idea that like Sesame Street is political um, is bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's not. <laughs> it's become a kind of catch-all word. You know, anything to do with the human um, is political. Um, I I just think that's that's really unserious. Um, you know, I I try to only use that word in the context of policy. Um, of actual party uh, politics and and policy bless you for trying (laughs) yeah I I try because because this kind of um, you know activism we see it in scholarship and in cultural criticism and um, they're not really talking about what they think they're talking about so here's a question so when somebody makes an objection to literally you know explicit politics in art. And this is something that I think has become much more overt, I want to say, within the past 10 years that, you know, you're, you're just likely to encounter 
not a subtle political message a la Animal Farm, which isn't even that subtle, um, but you know, at mm-hmm. least it's sophisticated, it's constructed in a certain way, but rather to just end up with some character kind of breaking the fourth wall to rant about this or that political topic. And yeah. if somebody says, God, I'm really tired of seeing this type of politics infecting my, you know, the TV that I watch, the books that I read, somebody will come back and say, art has always been political. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can speak a little bit to what's happening in that interaction. When somebody says art has always been political by way of defending this, I mean, it, it basically is like Sesame Street. It's, you know, a kind of a very bash you over the head moral lesson, like, here's what we're going to learn today. You know, what are they what are they really saying? What are they defending? Oh, I don't know. I don't listen to those people. Those people are idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. And and in the past, we never had to pay attention to them. Um, you know, in the past, people used to be cool, cat, And they would <laughs> they would just not listen to people who were fucking idiots who who clearly didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, we don't have to respect everyone's opinion equally. You know, everyone can have an opinion, fine. These sorts of platitudes are are just not worth our attention, I don't think. There's there's a lot of serious art critical historical work that has been done over the centuries by by people who are are genuinely interested in um in culture and how it changes over time um depending on circumstances, um, changing circumstances in which people live. And personally, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing as a commentator, um, or as a critic. I mean, I'm writing as an artist. Um, and so I feel like I have the, it's my prerogative to just ignore people who I think are, are not serious in what they're talking about. So I'm sorry, it's not a great answer to your question. But, no, um, but it was a, you know, a pretty epic rant and I appreciate it. I'm very excited to have it on the podcast. So the reason, one of the reasons that I'm thinking a lot about this idea of injecting politics into art um, is that there's this, uh, I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds here. So, you know, forgive me. There's this show on Netflix called You. Have you seen it by any chance? No, honestly, I I like don't, I don't watch tv i don't want to watch the stuff but tell me about this show okay yeah i'm gonna do my best to sum it up i I apologize in advance i'm not gonna do a good job this is a show based on a book it's based on actually a series of books it follows a man named joe who is a serial killer monogamist is probably the best way to put it and he in in each season and there have now been three seasons of this show he becomes obsessed with a woman who he's convinced is his soulmate. You know, he's been looking for love all his life. He has a lot of mommy issues, probably needless to say. Um, Mm -hmm. He becomes obsessed with a woman who he believes is his soulmate. Then he becomes obsessed with the idea that he needs to kind of control and own her. Uh, And then he ends up, spoiler alert, murdering her and getting away with it. And you basically root for him to do this because despite being... um, insane and a murderer he's incredibly fun um incredibly sardonic and these books i think you know the the fact that the show is as effective as it is for the first two seasons is is a testament to how well constructed the books are um do you empathize with joe i don't know but you but you like him 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you like watching him doing what he's doing, even if you don't approve of it. And I think that that is, you know, something that strong art that doesn't concern itself much with empathy does. However, it's harder and harder for a piece of work like that to exist against the present backdrop of this sort of obsession with, well, you know, what message are we sending? And I was very interested to see that the most recent season of this show in which there's no longer a book that they can base it on. So the writers are flying blind and all of a sudden it did include these sort of fourth wall breaking moments in which a character just kind of rants about like, ugh, white men, they are the worst for a few minutes. And then the story picks up again. And I wonder <laughs> if this has something to do with the way that we've begun to talk about and conceive of art and its purpose. If when you have a show that has never really sought to cultivate empathy. And if you tried to suggest as much, you'd be laughed at. Um, Does stuff like this end up creeping in as a way of signaling that we are nevertheless trying to do the right thing? Um, If, you know, trying to create art with a, with a proper purpose. So you feel like as the show has progressed, it's, it's become more self-aware about needing to, I don't know, be responsible or something like that. I think that's certainly possible. I mean, it's certainly it's a it's a notable tonal shift. Um, and I'm just mm-hmm. sort of spitballing, you know, is this what's happened here? Uh, my first thought is that, you know, you're talking about um, a TV show, you know, in my in my essay and the other um, material I'm working on, I'm, I'm really writing about art. And in my mind, I, I make a, a pretty clear distinction between the two. Um, and that's just what works for me. You know, I see TV shows and a lot of movies, certainly not all of them, um, but then also certain kinds of uh, fiction. You know, I, I see it more as entertainment than as, you know, literary art um, or, or, or higher art, which for which I have different standards and different expectations um, I think, you know, the, the, the entertainment value has a lot to do with that. And then just the, the history of these mediums has a lot to do with it, too. Um, I think the audience has different expectations. But some of the some of the same questions still apply. Um, I, for me, what you're um, what you're getting at is is some of the, the difference between, you know, form and content, but then also um, subject matter so you know it sounds like this is a show where given the um synopsis um the protagonist should be a bad guy and you know we we go into it thinking we're not supposed to like this person but the show is successful because it subverts those expectations and he's actually likable but the way it does that is through its its um form in a way i mean you say that he's funny you know, and that's because the writing is good um, or because the acting is good, um, because the, you know, the way the scenes are cut is is well done. You know, all of that, all of these um, aspects exist on a different plane from that of um, what the show is about. Okay, sorry. I'm just going to I'm just going to jump in for a second. So, you know, it sounds like you draw pretty hard lines between popular culture that people consume for entertainment and high art that people consume for what reason? I mean, it's different for every person. 
because they feel compelled to <laughs> compelled out of like out of guilt like I, I have to read this or I have to look at this in order to be a, a cultured individual no no I not at all because they for more inexplicable reasons than that um because they oh, compelled like by their have... own hearts gotcha okay yeah 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 um or or minds or spirits you know parts of them I think great great artworks uh speak to parts of us that we don't usually listen to or don't realize are there until we encounter the work um and then over time if someone chooses to you know invest their time in seeking out these experiences learning more about artworks individual artists and and, and mediums how they develop then you know, that's what they choose to do. And they do it in hopes of kind of developing a personal canon and having, um, um, you know, a lifelong, potentially, uh, uh, very private um, conversation with with those works. Um, and, and, and in comparison, I suppose, popular culture is, uh, is a much more, pub, you know, takes place in a much more public sphere. You know, we stand around the water cooler talking about TV shows, not necessarily talking about um, that work in the, you know, room you rarely end up in, in the, you know, in the back wing of the Met. So maybe that's another way to make that distinction. Interesting. So the high art is the art that is, so there can't be a fandom around high art. There can be, but for me, you know, I, it's, it's a fandom that I share in with dead people more than with living people. <laughs> I wow. will read books I'll read books written by dead people and feel like I'm 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 communing with them, I'm having shared experiences with them. And it it doesn't quite happen the same way with popular culture, I don't think. Although, you know, who knows, maybe a hundred years from now, like people will be reading contemporaneous reviews of the Sopranos and feeling like they're participating in an ongoing conversation, you know, around that show. It's a great show. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about how some fictional forms or structures, stories are being told kind of over and over each in their time. There is obviously in his time Shakespeare telling stories about family drama, murder, ambition. And mm -hmm. then hundreds of years later, you have Succession, right, on HBO. And that's, mm -hmm. it's a very Shakespearean drama. Um, the themes, the right, you know, everything about it really has that analog. But is one of these things high art and the other not? But I guess Shakespeare in his time wouldn't have necessarily been considered high art. He was really for the masses too. So is that sort of where it, um, the line gets drawn again? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, th I think... I think time figures this stuff out for us. It's hard for me. I, I, I'm suspicious of anyone who makes those de sorts of declarations about um, contemporary work. You know, I think there are, there are movies that were maybe popular when they came out, but will prove to be considered, you know, works of high art. I don't think we know in the time. Is this, this is, you know, what I'm talking about is part of the reason why I don't read a huge amount of, cultural criticism or, or you know, book, rev book reviews in mainstream venues these days, because I just think 
these are such complex issues. It's very difficult for people in the moment to really see what's happening around them for what it is. I think it it often takes or almost always takes a few generations to pass before we have that kind of um, clarity about what was what was happening and what it meant and what its value was or is. I haven't seen Succession. I I hear it's great, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it just, you know, I only held it up as an example because it seems, you know, quite analogous to something like, say, King Lear. But uh, it's interesting, you know, that we're talking about Shakespeare because this is part actually of your essay, um, you know, that we have, uh, you know, books being written now that take a backward gaze at the canon, um, at high art, and there's this subtitle, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy. So mm-hmm. I guess in some cases, you know, the passage of centuries offers some clarity as to the location of a piece of art on that spectrum, you know, from popular to something more elevated. Mm-hmm. But then there's also people who are seeking to sort of update the way that they think about it into a very now lens. Shakespeare is a, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up, actually. It's a really good example for, you know, something I'd like to talk about that is, that's related to everything we've said before now and, and maybe can better clarify my own personal distinctions between high and low and that sort of thing. I think with Shakespeare, one thing that one learns about Shakespeare um, as a student at some point is that he, um, he didn't come up with his stories most of the time. No, these were older stories that were already around, um, and he he took them up and he changed things here and there, and he added characters. And um, but a lot of the time, the kind of arc of the story that, and the and the drama of the story um, existed, you know, before Shakespeare wrote them down. They already had a kind of you know currency. And for me, what it is that makes Shakespeare so well, there's many things one could say, but uh, what I thought was interesting about this book that I discuss in the essay is that it is um, considering Shakespeare and teaching Shakespeare in a way where it is the way the characters behave and the things that they do and the things that they say that are worthy of our attention and consideration because they teach us things about um, those people and their circumstances and that we can feel empathy for these characters now that's fine you know and it, i don't think there's anything false in in that book i think it, it was written by a scholar she's taught shakespeare for a long time she knows what she's talking about she's probably an amazing teacher in the classroom my problem is if we're talking about empathy we're not talking about everything else we could be talking about now it might be because i'm a poet i i just pay more attention than the average person to this but for me that the reason that Shakespeare has survived is it's not just because of the stories not just because of the things people do it's because of the language if 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 Shakespeare had a contemporary who wrote the same stories with the same action but with a different language that wasn't as good the plays wouldn't have survived the reason they've survived is because of the language because of you know the form the very um, zoomed in uh, material fact of what he made. You know, you cannot, and and this is something I always say about poetry, and and I think it's it's apt to make this comparison uh, to Shakespeare, who wrote in in verse. 
you know, poems, good poems cannot be translated uh, into a, back into English. They cannot be transcribed. You can't summarize a poem and have it still be the poem. It just exists in itself in the language that is there. You can't take away one word. You can't change a line for a line that means the same thing, but is in different words. That would fundamentally change the thing. So the language is, is what we really have at the end of the day. So I would just, you know, ask whether, you know, if succession has some of the same dramas and the same sort of, uh, you know, tensions and action between the characters, um, that make it really compelling, you know, and make us enjoy and be moved by and shocked by um, everything that's happening in an episode of the show, I would just ask whether it is, you know, the action alone, or whether it's the way that the images are being made, <laughs> you know, whether mm. it's really like the lines in the show, whether it's the, the dialogue is like, really perfect in every scene, you know, could you... Um, have a scene in which, you know, every word spoken by one character was like slightly different, but the exact same thing was conveyed. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, maybe um, the work isn't quite as singular as it might be. You know, the way that you describe poems is really interesting to me um, because you make them sound almost as though they're a vessel that contains something magic but that the moment you start to try to deconstruct them in any way, even if it's just trying to summarize what they are, you know, you talk about it and the vessel breaks and the magic is lost. I don't know if I would say that. You know, I think to talking about works we care about is um, can really enrich our um, understanding and appreciation of them. I guess I just mean that the work... I'd, I say this passingly in the essay, but I'm, I'm writing about this more. I just mean that the work is autonomous in itself, that it couldn't exist in a different form. So, you know, there's about craft, about the way that artworks are made and how this ties into politics. Um, there was, I don't know if you remember this, there was a, a, a really extraordinary article in the Times I think right at the end of last year by Viet Thanh Nguyen about like the end of the Trump era and what that meant for writers. This was probably one of the things I read at the end of last year that made me think like, holy shit, the, you know, the mainstream um, conversation around art and literature is just diabolical. I mean, there are like the most loony ideas out there, facile ideas out there that are being platformed by the New York Times just amazing to me and this guy you know has a Pulitzer Prize and a fancy teaching gig and is incredibly powerful and yet is just expressing the most ridiculous ideas but it, it's also kind of wonderful when someone says them says this stuff out loud you can point to it and say look this is what they think yes this is the post-trump future of literature by Viet Thanh Nguyen yeah this was in the New York Times on December 22nd 2020 so just about a year ago yeah there's too much to say about this but I was reminded of it um earlier when we were talking when he makes he makes a point in this essay about craft being not important basically I think he says that craft is not art um, and that actually craft is what, I don't think he says it's what white supremacists talk about, but he kind of insinuates that. He says that craft is what white people like to talk about when they don't want to talk about politics. They're just too alienated 
by the political system. They can't bring themselves to to really face the existential threat that is that is Trump, that is racism. And so, you know, writers like to talk about craft, which is just a is a really wonderful um, putting language to um, this idea that I think has, you hear expressed a lot these days, MFA programs, you know, a lot of people are saying this stuff, there are books out now that are about decolonizing the workshop method, it's too much about craft, you know, I just, this idea that, that being attentive to the way in which an artwork is made is somehow irresponsible, and is a deflection from the real subject matter, which is, which should be politics, that should be all that artists are thinking about, is a really crazy, stupid idea. I wanted to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone, I think everyone knows it. Um, but this guy has the platform to to um, put this out there. I probably the comments to that article by Times readers were like, "What the fuck is this guy talking about?" I mean, he's he says he says dumber shit than that, but I think. Um, it again goes back to my point about language in Shakespeare, the materiality of paint in Rousseau. Somehow we can just ignore craft and have politics. And um, that's what books, that's what fiction is made of. Yes. Well, this actually gets at something that um, I've talked about with a, a bunch of other guests on the podcast before, which is this sort of shifting idea of what it actually means to create art and what it means to have a career as an artist. And it's something that increasingly, and it depends on what kind of spaces you're in, what kind of spaces you're creating in, but people have begun to see it less as a question of, you know, having created something amazing, you know, something that speaks to people uh, and more as something that you are, you know, this is your reward um, your career, your, you know, your, your place in the artistic canon is a reward for having the proper politics or, you know, for having, you know, for being a moral person in some other way. Um, and there, there's a flip side conversation there about who deserves, you know, who deserves to have their work be seen. And yeah. it's often talked about in ways that are entirely divorced from the quality of the work itself or, or from anything to do with the work. And it's all about the artist and the identity of the artist. And yeah. I think that, you know, that plays in and it, it kind of brings us full circle nicely to this notion that art is supposed to be an exercise in empathy and that's what it's for. Um, and it's not just about inducing empathy in the viewer or the reader, but also about positioning a certain identity or certain artists as the people with whom you are meant to empathize and yeah. who can kind of be your leader in in teaching you what empathy is. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And I would just say for for those of us who are dissatisfied with this paradigm, we just choose to opt out of it. That's what we have to do. We have to say these critics, these awarding bodies, these institutions, their values aren't what they used to be. I write about this in the essay about museums who are really changing and re, you know, literally redefining themselves. You know, it's up to all of us to um, kind of reevaluate whether we whether we respect these institutions anymore, whether we have the same value system as them, um, whether we think having you know, as you put it, the proper politics 
are really what matter. I just think we all have to give ourselves permission to say they've these institutions, these people, these individuals, you know, maybe they used to have the same uh, value system as us about these things, but clearly they don't anymore. And then if that's the case, then we, we give up on them. We look elsewhere. It's been hard for me to do personally. You know, there's so many. I used to look at who won the National Book Award as something that meant something. Um, maybe it was naive of me. You know, there's always been there's always been politics played behind the scenes in these things. Who's who's right. awarded stuff and um, who becomes a bestseller is often. Um, it's not just because of the work, is it? It's because of the way it's promoted and the way yeah. it's talked about. In other words, art has always been political, but we mean that in a different way than the people who say, <laughs> who say it in an obnoxious way. It's, it's always been up to the individual. I think the maybe there were times in the past hundred years when certain institutions could be depended on more, um, be run by people of integrity who you know, didn't feel like they needed to use these utilitarian justifications for for art producers, that, you know, and TV executives too, you know, they could just see that they were in the business of entertainment um, and they didn't need to shove all this uh, fourth wall stuff in, as you described it. But, um, you know, if we don't like it, then we just ignore it and we say, you know what, like, I don't respect the Pulitzer committee anymore. Every individual can do that and I think needs to. Or needs to be willing to. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a great place to end. And I want to just to conclude, read this bit of your essay, um, just a couple of sentences that I think resonated with me and hopefully will resonate with our listeners. Getting to this question of what does art do? Readers and audiences are flattened into, quote, members of society by the empathy fixation, stripped of their all-too-human parts to which society is blind. But society had to be invented. It does not contain the human experience. We are not social beings only acted on by power structures. There is more to existence than our emotional connection with or responsibilities to others, which is an incredibly radical thing to say, but I'm very, very glad that you said it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy to say because it sounds mean, doesn't it? It does. But, you know, I think being mean is underrated and art (laughs) sometimes has to be mean. Um, As I scroll back up to look at this, uh, this picture of Judith cutting off the head of the bad man. So with that, thank you so much, Alice, for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Thank you. It's been a a real pleasure. This has been Feminine Chaos. Feminine Chaos.